Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. I'm excited to be recording today uh, with Martin Clark this live podcast in front of a live audience. Let them know you're here, y'all. Tell us you're here. Come on. Say something. Uh, so Parker Books have been supporting this show from the very beginning and our season one, which started in October of 2018. When this episode releases as part of season four, it'll be in September of this year. We'll be into our 50th episode by then. I'm here with Martin Clark, who's come to visit us from Stewart, uh, Virginia, to talk about his latest novel, The Substitution Order. Martin, glad to be with you tonight. And it's good to be here. Thanks for inviting yeah, me. How about this audience? It's nice to have an audience. It's nice to have anyone. I've done gigs and no one shows up. So <laughs> that's right. That's the truth. That's right. So for those of you who don't know much about the podcast, this is a show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those like Martin who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. We do more than just talk about uh, their writing. Uh, you're going to hear them read. And uh, on our show tonight, the format's going to be like this. We're going to have 30 minutes that will consist of two readings by Martin and some questions by me answers by him hopefully 15 minutes where we explore martin's writing life and during that 15 minutes you're going to have an opportunity to step up to the microphone and ask questions as well we'll incorporate that into the podcast if uh if you don't want to be on the podcast don't step up and ask any questions save them for later you can listen to this podcast for free on apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcast or at our website charlottereaderspodcast.com you can also engage with the show there we've got we'll have uh martin's picture there videos we'll have uh show notes about the show. We'll have all, all kind of information. We're part of the Queen City Podcast Network. Thanks to Michael, who's part of that network, for uh, running the mixing board and the technical stuff tonight. I also want to thank the Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, who in addition to Parkway Books is sponsoring uh, this show. All of our episodes are on their library's digital branch. I think that's it for the prologue. Everybody ready to do a podcast? Ready? Ready? All right. Cue the music. In today's episode, we meet author Martin Clark, a retired Virginia Circuit Court judge who spins legal thrillers with a twist and who knows a thing or two about the legal system and the lawyers and defendants who by choice or circumstance are wrapped up in it. Martin has been praised by Entertainment Weekly as our best legal thriller writer, and his latest book, The Substitution Order, is the focus of this episode. When the book opens, we learn that the protagonist in the story, Kevin Moore, has gone from a high-flying Virginia attorney to a disbarred lawyer on probation, separated from his wife, short on cash, and working in substitution, the world's saddest sandwich shop. He's at rock bottom when a mysterious stranger wanders into the shop armed with a threatening invitation to join a multi-million dollar insurance scam. It's a Hobson's choice. Kevin can agree to commit insurance fraud and have his law license restored, or he can refuse the offer and face a fabricated malpractice case and felony criminal charges orchestrated by a gang of untouchable con artists. In a recent review by the New York Times, Alifar Burke says, the substitution order is not merely a good legal thriller, it's a great one. Clark cleverly weaves together a truly thrilling ending. But first, we start with the beginning, where Martin reads from early in the book, 
where our hero has refused the offer to participate in the insurance scam, and Caleb, the unwelcome and mysterious con man, advises him to consider his choice carefully. Caleb smiles. Would you at least think about it, please? We'll discreetly put a quarter million in your pocket and contact a friend in Richmond who can help you get your law license restored. He's a heavyweight. You can return to practicing law what you really want. Quit the hoagies and hairnets. We both know that even if you complete your probation and get your felony charge dismissed, there's no guarantee when or if you'll get your law license back. The only victims and insurance company which makes a living beating people out of what they're owed and rolling the dice on risk. Honest risk, I interject, real risk, not fraud, and we don't have to wear hairnets here. Think about it, he suggests softly, sleep on it. The other option isn't appealing, let me promise you. We'd have to compromise you, of course, and I hate that. You seem like a quality man. You were a star, a headliner. When the big shots needed the best, they call Kevin Moore. You're charismatic, movie star handsome. The courtroom's Clooney, according to the puff piece in the Times-Dispatch, correct? Look around this dive. This is wrong, crazy, heartbreaking, unnecessary. Sorry, no can do. Caleb sighs and flips his hands around. Geez, I'm trying to help you. This is good fortune, and you're pissing on it. He sounds exasperated. Let me at least give you a number if you change your mind. It's active for the next two days. The phone will be burned after that. We might even be able to sweeten the offer to 300000 and arrange for a Virginia congressman to join our other friend in persuading the state bar. The collaborative deadline passes if we don't hear from you in those two days, and darn, sorry to have to do it, but then we become adversaries. Unfortunately for you, both Plan A and Plan B are guaranteed winners for us. This path is just much easier for us both. You have something to write with? You can tell me. I have an excellent memory. 303-228-7109. He recites the numbers deliberately. Listen, I say, making an effort to come off as humble and plaintive as possible. The truth is, I've been through hell. I've learned a lesson. I'm tired, I'm broke, my wife's gone. I'm living in exile in Patrick County, Virginia. I'm working in a sandwich shop for one of my former clients. I stop. I look him square in the face. Could you simply leave me alone, let me be? I want to keep my head above water for the foreseeable future, stay clean and sober, get free and clear of the court system and my felony, and start all over again. You're suing me or jerking me around as a setback I didn't invite and I don't need. We're the antidote, he declares. Take the medicine and we'll cure you. He grabs the sandwich bag and starts to squirm out of the booth. Sleep on it, friend, he says as he's rising. It's coming no matter how you decide. No need to be a martyr for an insurance company and a justice system that made an over-the-top example of your harmless stumble so it could prove to the Peckerwoods and low-rent criminals and editorial writers that it's fair across the board. We both know you got hammered, slapped in the public stocks, mistreated, a white-collar trophy for the state. Damn, I mutter as he walks off. I study his side of the table. He didn't touch anything or leave anything behind. I crane my neck to see if I can spot a bleached hair. No luck. When I rush to the front window, I discover he's climbing into a blue sedan parked across the street behind an empty building. 
but I re can't read the license plate as he pulls away. Probably a rental, anyhow. The country music is gassing me from the ceiling, blather about a pickup truck in the high school football field. Blaine, I say, prompting him to stop wiping the toaster oven and swiveling in my direction, you need to check the security DVD. Right now, please. I want the footage of the guy who was just in here, and I want you to save it. Roger that, Lord Mansfield, Blaine replies. I'll take care of it. A few moments, few moments later, he pops his head from the kitchen and announces that the system was somehow powered off and hasn't recorded a single frame since the Sutphin squad left the store. Even though Luther's security cameras are cut-rate junk, cut junk designed to thwart crackheads, clumsy sneak thieves, and embezzling employees, I take a long breath and bite my lower lip because I'm realizing Caleb opportunity might indeed be trouble for me. Then it hits me that he sauntered out and never paid for the sandwich. <laughs> That's as much as I have read in 20 years. How about that? <laughs> All right, let me do a little bio here. The New York Times Magazine says Martin Clark is not only the thinking man's John Grisham, but maybe better, the drinking man's John Grisham. And David Baldacci praised him as a truly original writer. Martin is a retired Virginia Circuit Court judge who served 27 years on the bench. His novels have appeared on several bestseller lists and have been chosen as the New York Times Notable Book, a Washington Post Book World Best Book of the Year, a Bookmarks Magazine Best Book of the Year, a Boston Globe Best Book of the Year, a Book of the Month Club selection, a finalist for the Stephen Crane Award for First Fiction, and the winner of the Library of Virginia's People's Choice Award in 2009 and 2016. He received the Patrick County Outstanding Community Service Award in 2016 and the Virginia State Bar's Harry L. Carrico Professionalism Award in 2018. Martin's wife, Deanna, is a photographer, and they live on a farm with dogs, cats, chickens, guinea fowl, and three donkeys. His previous novels were The Jezebel Remedy, The Legal Limit, Plain Heathen Mischief, and The Many Aspects of Mobile Home Living. Charlotte Reader's podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show, please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, or the podcast platform of your choice, because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Martin, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought we were through. I, I, yeah, I, I yeah. did the no, like, you're not two, hour, two, hour, two hours of reading. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah I'm yeah. innovating. And you only have one more reading to yeah, do here. So, so, so here's my first question after reading your bio. How does an esteemed judge of 27 years and a recipient of Community Service and Professionalism Awards slide so easily and amiably from that world to a world of constructing a tale like this that really depends for success on revealing and having fun with the flaws and imperfections of our legal system. Well, I mean, I'm on, I, I would know better than anybody, and so would you. I'm, I'm the person who sits there, and I get to see where all the trap doors are, where all the, the secrets are. And, and, and as you sit there in a courtroom for uh, 28 years, you, you get a sense of how things can happen. And, and, and the other part, at least for me, that's interesting in this book 
and 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 I'm going to go off script just a bit. Just you said you would, so go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> as promised. <laughs> not really the question you asked. But, you said but, you weren't going to answer my questions today, so I got this out. Let's, <laughs> but, but let's see this how is, this is going to work. This know? is this is no. This is tangential to what you okay, asked. Okay. The, the sort of the 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 germ for this book and and this story came when I was in court. And, and I was doing a jury trial, and I had a brand-new administrative assistant, uh, Leanne. And, and the trial was a criminal case, and the defendant was charged with sexually abusing a family member. Um, and he pled not guilty, and it was a Patrick County, Virginia jury. And the Commonwealth's case was a straight laydown. The defendant not only confessed, the defendant confessed on tape. So it's not this sort of dry recitation with an officer reading a Q&A. You just play the tape, and that's him, and that's his voice, and he's confessing in, in, in great detail and, and exactly what he did and, and, and sounding really guilty as he does it. And you wonder, what is the defense to that? The defendant takes the stand, and after a couple routine questions, was asked, well, did you confess and why? He said, I did. And he said, I confess because I love my stepson. And I knew that he had told the police this story, this version of events. And I feared, unless I accepted responsibility and agreed with him, that the police would charge him at age 12 with making a false report to the police. So therefore, I confessed. And the jury, I mean, it's just, <laughs> the jury's turning around it, to look it, at it, me. It's too hard to believe, which is exactly what happens to Kevin exactly. Moore in this story. Exactly. It is too hard to believe, and that's one of the things, I mean, I, I mentioned this imperfection, but you make the point in the book that the legal system is so overworked and so understaffed that it has a hard time seeing any truth in conspiracy, right? That, 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 that's Could, true. Because, and, you know, like this guy, right, he comes up with this story. And, and, and just as, as we were discussing as, uh, with Kevin in this story, the, the jury found this guy guilty, of course, and, 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 and they added on a little bit in the Patrick County way for lying and, and inconveniencing <laughs> them and, and making them come to court when they should have been doing something else. But, but as, as we went back in the office, my, my new administrative aide looked at me and she said, well, that was silly and preposterous and no one would believe it. It was crazy. But one day, don't you worry that you will hear the crazy story that's true. And how will you ever know? And that's the germ for, for this book. And, and Kevin uh, is, is someone, a lawyer, and he's on the receiving end of everything he knows to be flawed with the system. Yeah, so your novel starts out, well, the storyteller's arc for the hero's journey. I mean, you do it by first placing your protagonist in the worst possible situation at the outset of the book. I mean, you, he's disbarred because of cocaine use. He's on probation. He's separated from his wife. He's working in a sub shop for minimum wage, right? And then you continue. Brief cocaine and use. Then you brief, 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 co brief. And then you continue to make his life more difficult. And here's my quick Which did you enjoy more? Creating the scenario of the beatdown lawyer with no way out? <laughs> Or, or figuring out how that lawyer is going to get out of the impossible jam that he's in. I, this book was different for me. I wrote it in the first person, right. and, and it's the first time I have ever – you and I were talking at dinner, and, and I have the, when I write the books, the plot I have ready to go. It's from Alpha to Omega, and it's in my head, so the plot's done. 
but I have never dwelled on character like this before. And, and, and I heard an interview with Larry Brown um, that, that was done in uh, Memphis b before Larry passed away. And, and the interviewer, um, Stephen Ussery, um, asked him, how do you write? And he said, just what you said. He said, I take interesting characters and I load them up with troubles. And, and I then let them work themselves out of those troubles. And, and I, that, I had never done that, and I did it in this book. And, it, and, and, and the, the intro of the book went from 30 pages to 20 to 10 to 5 to, to, yeah. to finally get it with some pace. But that's what I did. I, I, I did a Larry Brown, take a good character, load him up with troubles, let him work his way out, and see what happens. It's kind of like Stephen King. He wrote this book on writing. You think of Cujo. He puts a guy in a car. There's a dog outside. The whole rest of the movie is trying to get out of the car. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you put him in an impossible situation and spend the rest of the book trying to figure out how to get out of it. So let's talk about this very creative blackmail plot line because when I read this first chapter of the book, I thought that could have been a plot twist in and of itself, the way you know this fake client scam, the malpractice law school. Just explain briefly for everybody because we're not going to give it away. In the first chapter – what he's up against when Caleb comes in there and we've got this fake uh, option contract and so forth. So well, one of the things that's happened, if, if you live where, where, um, where I live in Virginia, and one of the things I do in the book is to give that credibility and make it believable is anchor it to and, and surround it with real events that happened in Virginia. And, and we have seen a, a lot of really good hustles uh, in Virginia, one called Catalan chemical. You can look that up. This is true. And you can see our governor with a great big check the size of this table <laughs> handing it to con artists right there. And they take $1.5 million of, of taxpayer money and head back to China never to be seen again. And, and, and it says in the book, and this isn't meant to be political at all because I think corruption translates across all parties these days. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but our governor uh, was – his case ended up in the United States Supreme Court. It began when he was taking uh, dirty cash and a Rolex from a, from a snake oil salesman, from a patent medicine grifter. Uh, I mean, that's really – so you have that. It's pervasive in Virginia, and this scam basically is, is a pretty simple variation – uh, of inflating the value of land uh, through fake sales. So Kevin, the protagonist, uh, he's used cocaine once, as he says, but then he starts buying it some more, and he's not doing very well in his law practice, kind of struggling through. And a woman walks in his office and asks him to look up an option on a piece of property yep. near Premlin, you know, the big estate there. And, and now Caleb comes back and says what really happened that day was she asked you to exercise that option. To close the deal. To close and the deal. And, and he says, didn't. I did not do that. I just told her what the option was. And so what happens? Well, another company comes and buys that property for the $800,000, turns around and sells it to another company for $5 million. But those companies actually know each other and have something to do with Caleb. All right. So now you've got the situation where this woman's going to come forward and she's going to say. I got that was. If, if you had if you'd closed the option, I would have had that property. I would have bought it for seven hundred fifty thousand. And I'm going to sue you for malpractice. And and get the difference between the marketplace value of six million and um, and and what I paid. And Kevin, you've bucks. got no excuse because you were on drugs at the time, so you might as well fold the towel, tell the malpractice, you know, insurance company that you're. You know, you're liable and let them take the five million. We'll that give sounds you Byzantine. Wow, yeah. I'm like I'm, I'm like <laughs> look at these faces, everybody. <laughs> Yeah, and, then, like, and, so, and so he turns this down, and then what happens? Well, 
the bad things start to happen. And I'm not giving anything away because it's the first two chapters of the book. He shows up for his probation drug test, right? And, and he's set up. And he's and, set up. And, and this is the unbelievable story that nobody's going to believe in court. Yeah, and, and that's the way the system works. I mean, let's be honest about it. How many times do we hear probationers or defendants say, ah, oh, man, somebody just snicked that, that meth they, was just slipped in my yeah, tea. Yeah, or they substituted my urine sample for what I did, which is exactly what happens in this book. Yeah. You know? um, <laughs> it's a system they, that doesn't they put, believe in the put They put the, the, uh, the gun in the car mm-hmm. and the extra drugs. So suddenly, Kevin... Your protagonist, your hero, is going to be charged with a felony um, for selling drugs, having a gun, and failing his drug test. And he's going to lose his law license because he didn't cooperate. And 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 the point is that once – and we can talk about the judicial system. And as an evidentiary matter, once you go in, you're presumed to be innocent. But think about the rules that you'll be playing under once you get there. And this is what he's facing as an attorney. I'm pretty sure it's the same in, in, in this state, but in most states, and certainly in the, in, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, if you are a convicted felon or if you've been convicted of a misdemeanor that involves lying, cheating, or stealing, the, the, the next time you appear in court and elect to testify, the jury's going to know that. You will be asked, isn't it a fact that you've been convicted of a felony? Uh, that's not while you're presumed innocent. That, that is quite an impediment to, to testifying. Uh, additionally, in, in Virginia now, if you've been convicted of a crime involving sexual abuse, not only will the jury know that you have been convicted of a crime involving sexual abuse, they're going to know that uh, a, a felony, they're going to know exactly what it was. So if you're on trial for a, a, a crime involving sexual abuse, then the jury's going to know. You, they're going to be told, by the way, he's been convicted of this or she's been convicted of this before. And, and those are the difficulties that you face, you're presumed innocent, and, and, and you have the presumption of innocence, and it attaches and goes with you throughout the trial. And what, and what you find through this book is that this character is starting to realize that no matter what he does, he's not going to be able to convince anybody in this system that he's innocent. It's and, that crazy story. And, and so you're trying to figure out, well, how in the heck is he going to get out of this? You know? And that's the beauty of this book. But before we get to that, you deal with a very serious topic, drug addiction. Mm-hmm. And, and my question to you is, how did a drug-addicted lawyer become a what-if for you in this story? Mm. Well, uh, this is true. And I was just in, in Richmond last week, and one of my um, consultants was there. Um, I, I can well, – there are people here from my law school days and college days. I, I can honestly say I have never in my life <laughs> used cocaine. Um, and, and, and so when I wrote the book, I didn't quite get it right. I had the people in this book using cocaine and then going and eating a whole lot. And my consult <laughs> – <laughs> they, they go out and eat a big meal. That, and, that's and called my, marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, so my consultant said, by the way, let me tell you, if, if, um, if you've done that much cocaine, you're not, the last thing you're going to want to do is, is eat. But I think in every bar there is that superstar. There was there, I, and, mm. and I certainly won't use the name, but mm. probably in every bar in every community, there is a superstar lawyer, and and he or she has a drug or alcohol problem, and 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 that's and and I watched it in my bar, um, and I watched it happen to a gifted lawyer who ended up in the federal penitentiary, and, and so it's not far fetched, and it's something that 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 I think we see over and over. I don't think it's 
peculiar but, but one, to what we but did. But one message you offer in this book is that recovery from addiction is possible because Kevin, despite everything else he's done, he, he stays sober, right? He does. And, and how would, does he do that? Well, I, if I knew that, I wouldn't be sitting here. I'd, I'd be. Uh, my, 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 my sweet, good friend, Beth Macy, just wrote a book called Dope Sick. And the thing that I don't know how many people have read it, if you hadn't, it, it is really uh, instructive. And, and Beth is a great person and, and a good writer. But the one thing that I took away from that, and the one thing I know from being in court, is that she, in this book, she quoted a stat. And, and she said that it will take four to five starts fits and starts or failures for most people who are addicted to drugs or alcohol to get one clean year. It is not linear. So uh, Kevin's recovery is pretty remarkable. One of the the, the heartbreaks of of doing my day job is that we just swim in that stuff. We, We just see addiction. We see, and, and it leads to theft. It leads to, to broken relationships. And, and, and we send people to this rehab, to that rehab, and, and it just it just doesn't seem to work. So Martin, um, in addition to everything else your main character is dealing with in this book, about halfway through the book, he has a stroke. Yep. Um, can you talk about how that ended up in the book and how you were able to provide <laughs> such a realistic view? Of, yeah. How I could talk about uh, that yeah. so realistically? When I started writing this book, um, as I said, it was the Larry Brown model, a, a really interesting character, likable character. I, I mean, I even cheat. I give, have him rescue a dog at the beginning out of a dumpster. That's cheating. You're going to like the guy. There that, you go. That's, you straight from sa- that's straight from Save the Cat, <laughs> right? Yeah. A novel. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you've got to like him because he, he rescues a puppy, not yeah, only a dog, yeah. but a puppy yeah. out of a dumpster. And, uh, but to load him up with troubles, um, I gave him a heart attack. And I had begun doing research and, and talking to my doctor friends about heart attack, how it affects you, the symptoms and everything, and, and woke up one day and had a stroke myself. And, and, and can you use mild profanity on your show? Sure. And, and yeah. damn near died. <laughs> um, and, um, how are you so doing now? I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I am, <laughs> that's, I guess, you know, up to perhaps others to decide and and I can say this because you know I'm on the receiving end of the stroke my chief judge I I declared I went back to work and declared that I was normal and and he said well Martin you know if you were basically brain dead to begin with (laughs) closing that gap after your stroke shouldn't have been too hard you're about a you're about a two on a one to ten so you're two again so I guess you are back to where you were before it just wasn't a very high standard but you know, thanks to a great wife, a steadfast uh, wife, and um, and the book is dedicated to my surgeon who fixed me, Dr. Stacy yeah. Wolf. So, Martin, you have a nice habit of using the names of friends uh, for some of your yeah. characters. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's tongue-in-cheek. Sometimes it's a tribute, like to uh, Clay Gravely, a Commonwealth yeah. attorney yeah. you mentioned in your acknowledgments. Can you talk about this practice, what it means to you, and about how, for example, uh, you honored uh, this Commonwealth attorney that you knew? Well, um First of all, there's a reason to do that. If you live in a small town, like I do, and you set your books in a small town, people who read the book will get knocked out of the narrative and, and, and lose the effect of the book. If you get to a spot and, and the character meets a sheriff or a lawyer or, or someone known to everyone and the name isn't real, if you live where I live in Patrick County and I refer to the sheriff or, or somebody, a, a, store, a store owner or something. And, and that name is just made up a whole 
legion of readers are going to stop and say, whoa, 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 that's not right, and it will just really bump you out of, out of the story. So I use real names. It, the names don't make any difference if you are in Charlotte or if you're in Wisconsin or California, but I use real names. And um, uh, Clay Gravely was a Commonwealth attorney in the city of Martinsville, an excellent, excellent lawyer and a funny guy. And, and I, I say in the acknowledgments, he had the best eye roll in the business. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a smart ass in the very, very, very best kind of way. And Clay knew that he was he had cancer, and he knew it. And we had, after my stroke, we would talk, and, and I actually would read him riffs that had him speaking in the book. And, and he really enjoyed it, and, and, but then he passed away, and I f- was worried that a larger audience would not understand the relationship we had and would not understand that dynamic and might think that, that the references were barbed or mean or... or uh, harsh, but I, I love Clay. He was a hero, um, and basically the good things in the book are are very accurate about Clay. But I did tone it down, make it a more of a combined character, and um, and and soften the edges a little bit I, because I didn't want him to come off as being. If he'd been, if he was still around, it'd be okay. Mm. But but people might not have understood. We well, also use real names of law firms. You used uh, the law firm that I retired from, McGuire Woods. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you, yeah. and I'm just wondering, you know, what do you publishers think about using the names of uh, entities that know how to find <laughs> yeah. the, the courthouse and sue you for uh, slander or libel? Yeah, well, or something? but I'm, you know, I'm yeah, good yeah. to McGuire Woods. And, <laughs> yeah, and, you are. <laughs> I, I, you, only, you're extra careful when you put the lawyers in there. Right? Yeah, yeah, and I've only called. I called. Uh, I've called one person <laughs> to have them preview. Uh, and by the way, I got a I got a release from uh, Minivan Dan Duggan, the character that he's. I got. I have yeah. an email release from from yeah. Minivan Dan. Um, Minivan Dan is a character that helps. There's a big supporting cast because Kevin Moore can't do this by himself. There's a puppy. He's not already mentioned the puppy. There's this Kevin. Minivan Dan. Minivan Dan, and he was in law school with you in real life, or a, a yeah. very hugely yeah. successful lawyer. And he has yeah. the nothing. At all. He he. This guy did not go into the minivan business, but he's a hugely successful lawyer in Boston, and, and he is a redheaded Irishman who at one point had a soft spot in, for JFK. And I think a, that's changed. And another person you're in law school with is sitting right here, Eddie Nicholson, and, and there's a Nicholson Roofing Company that's right. that Minivan Dan works for, right? That's, a, that's exactly Okay. <laughs> All right. So let's do this. Um, I'm going to have you read this other section, but before we do that, I want to set it up briefly. Uh, you've got a sense of humor. You're, you're willing to take jabs at judges for the sake of a good story, even though you're, you were a judge yourself. This is a scene um, after the protagonist has been set up um, with the drug test that he didn't take, and uh, he's got his bond hearing. And it just so happens his bond hearing is before a judge that's been on the bench for, what, 120 years or something? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and he doesn't much think of lawyers who end up there the first time, much less come back the second time. Uh, so take it away. Two solicitous bailiffs helped Judge Tyler Morris climb the modest steps toward the bench in the Martinsville courtroom. He revels in the attention and trappings, isn't the least bit embarrassed by his frailty. And once he's situated on the top step, he's handed his cane and begins creeping toward the judge's catbird seat. Morris is a wretched jurist, a lifer who can't let go of the gig and its influence. He doesn't have the energy or concern to keep abreast of the law, 
probably last read a statute 20 years ago, and now simply wings it in his rulings, orders whatever strikes him as fair, and becomes irate and punitive if a lawyer politely directs him to the correct law as it exists in this decade. <laughs> he sees the world in the black and white shades of a 1960s small town chamber of commerce president, and for defendants like me, that means any drug use is viewed as a corrupt weakness, contagious, and leftist, and anti-police, and anti-American, and exactly what's wrong with this dadgum country of ours. Morris locks his dull, beady turtle eyes on me. I'm hoping he's unaware of Virginia's current bond statute and doesn't realize there's a presumption against my being released from jail. He doesn't, make, he doesn't speak, but he makes a show of tracking back to Randy Clay. How old are you, son? He asks. 38, Clay says. I probably appear older because every year as a Commonwealth's attorney ought to count as five. Several people in the courtroom grin or chuckle, but not my prehistoric judge. I've been doing this job for almost 40 years, he crows, and I often wonder what's happening to our profession. How do you think this will look to the public, Mr. Clay? I hold lawyers to a higher standard, as I should. What Mr. Moore has done reflects badly on our profession. He smeared us all. I gave him one break. The lady prosecutor from Northern Virginia pushed that foolish on me. And I knew when I did it that a dope addict doesn't change his stripes. I said on the record it was a mistake. And now, here we are, all sit again with a new wet-behind-the-ears prosecutor singing the same old song. Only this go-round, Mr. Kevin Moore has graduated to selling powerful narcotics and carrying a firearm, and you want me to turn him loose. Hey listeners, I'm here at the staff book pick shelf at Parker Books with Sean. How you doing, Sean? Good, how about you? Tell us about some of your books. Yeah, so the first I've got is uh, Gods of Jade and Shadow by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. It's a uh, Mayan tale set in Jazz Age Mexico where Cassiopeia goes on an adventure um, with the Mayan god of death to reclaim his throne. Uh, great cover, great, great story. Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, then I've got Aisha at Last by Uzma Jalaluddin. Um, it is a modern-day uh, Muslim Pride and Prejudice for a new generation. Aisha is a poet, wants to be a teacher, but she doesn't want an arranged marriage. A modern-day Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, what's the serial killer book? Yeah, My Sister, the Serial Killer by Oinkin Brathway. It's a fantastic, creepy, dark tale where um, the main character's younger sister is always seeming to come up with dead boyfriends, and the older sister, our main character, is always cleaning up after her mess. Absolutely a pattern because your next book is The Luminous Dead. Yeah, I'm in a dark dark mood right <laughs> lately. The Luminous Dead is set on a mining planet um, deep, deep in some caves where the main character's only connection is an unstable woman. It's fascinating, dark, and creepy. All right, then that just takes us right into the children's book, right? Yeah, we're going to swing <laughs> far, far left into uh, Midsummer's Mayhem by Rajani LaRocca. It's a um, baking... A Midsummer Night's Dream meets baking with an Indian American family. It was sweet and lovely and, and perfect for the summertime. All right, dark shadows, serial killers, and sweet and lovely. Thanks, Sean. So. Thank, thank you. Thanks. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. 
These are the stories that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We're going to do something now. We're going to shift to the writing life segment. I'm going to ask a few questions of Martin about uh, what it means to be an author. Uh, and then I'm going to open the mic up and have people come up if you'd like to and ask some questions yourself. Uh, Martin, um, like relationships, novel writing is uh, a serious commitment. What made you decide to say I do to novel writing, and how would you describe your current relationship with this mistress? <laughs> That's, I think, what we call an extended conceit. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. You can have uh, it. Um, <laughs> Well, I write because I like it, and and I would have to, um, Sally. In in this very bookstore, I don't think I'll get. It'll be, I, it's the longest I have ever read. Sally will tell you yeah. I've never, I never read at my gigs. Yeah. And um, so we drew that out of you. Yeah, drew that out yeah. of me. And I always read my rejection letters. That's that's <laughs> that that's something I always do. So. Mm-hmm. I would have to really like doing it to have endured twenty years of rejection, and and I like it. That is why I do it. Um, and and that's. People like stamp collecting, people like tennis, people like bowling, people like all kinds of things. I enjoy doing it. I get up every day, I write one hour. Uh, years and years ago, Tom Wolfe told me, I was talking about how would you write a novel, and, and it seems so long and so much to keep up with. He said, if you write a page a day for a year, you will have written a novel. And it's not quite that simple and formulaic, but that's true. So I get up every day, I love doing it, um, and and... And I write a page a day, and in about a year or so, I have a novel. Okay, but look, lawyers and judges, you write in a legalistic yeah. way much of the time. You, you, you write opinions. Authors write stories. So what do you find to be the most challenging aspect of making that transition from writing this linear opinion to writing something that people really want to read? <laughs> well, the, the opposite, it may work the other way. I, I, I find out that a lot of people, the, the, and, and I'm aware of this, one of the issues that I have is people read the stuff that you, and I'm grateful, thank you for reading that, and, 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 it, and I love the reviews, and, and I've dined out on, on that stuff for, you know, two decades now, and, 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 but if you, if you buy one of my books and you expect to get a traditional, very linear legal thriller, that is really a high octane plot, just very bang, 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 and, and very little character development, you will be disappointed to the point of being angry. So maybe some of the judicial writing would do better. I would do better to, to make these books a little less adorned. Some people are like the extra. Some people like the riffs on everything from religion to, to shoes to, 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 to whatever. And, but some people think it's discursive, so perhaps maybe I would do better to make the, make the novels just nah, a tad stick, more stick linear. To, stick to storytelling. So you've now written five novels. Yes, uh, has your approach changed to novel writing in this novel from the one you wrote the first? Yeah, and I mentioned that earlier. I, yeah. I, just, I have never written a book in the first person. Yeah. Um, so that's one change. And I have never been so character-oriented, and I have never just— had a character loaded with troubles at the very beginning. And I, and as, as I say, I mean, Larry Brown um, was my hero, my writing hero, and that's where I got the idea, and, and that's how I wrote this book. So a good villain can really drive a story. Um, and in this case, you have a villain at the beginning. His name's Caleb, but then he drops out, and he's sort of behind the scenes. In some respects, I think the judicial system is the villain uh, is that a fair assessment? That is a fair assessment. And, Can you uh, spin that out just a minute? 
let me see if I can that actually on um, this is this is a, a, a line that has shown up a lot in in reviews and, and this will answer your question and uh, since I'm on a reading roll and, and a binge <laughs> rather than go for your record <laughs> yeah I've already my record is, is tonight so this is um, this is Kevin talking to his lawyer when she tells him by the way, we're going to lose the civil case. And by the way, you're going to jail. This is his response. Um, how ironic that I'm now on the receiving end of that advice. Kevin says, I've always warned clients that the criminal justice system does not calibrate well. It's like a 70s model snapper comet mower. You have three basic blade settings and that's it. We can handle fistfights, killings, shootings, knife scrapes, larcenies, heterosexual divorces, boundary line disputes, and drug sales. The same old, same old. But a well-done hustle, as rare and layered as this, will usually overwhelm a creaky contraption built by bewigged rustics who'd never heard of penicillin and would ooh and ah at a light bulb. <laughs> and and, and I, as someone who worked in the system for a long time, I, I don't want to seem like the, the system works. I don't mean to say that it doesn't, but the point of that passage and the point of this book is that oftentimes there it's just not equipped to handle something that is the unicorn case. And we see that every day. Those are the cases you read about in the newspapers that slips that it will slip through the cracks. I'm quite proud, all kidding, to have been a judge, to have been a judge for 28 years, to have been a judge in Virginia. I'm sure I made errors, and the Supreme Court told me in writing just recently, you know, that I'm and that I made an error. But I think the system does well, generally speaking, and 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 I am an advocate for the system. I'm, but. In fiction writing, uh, risks like that certainly will drive the story. So um, the listeners may not be aware of the fact that you are an avid fly fisherman. We had a lot of conversation about fly fishing at dinner um, and on the phone when we talked ahead of time. Do you see any correlation between uh, what a fly fisherman has to contend with and what an author has to contend with? No. I love fly fishing, too. I'm not real sure. Um, you can't find anything? I, help me. You, 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 I mean, I'll let you. Help me. I'm, 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 just, I'm just flailing here. I'm trying to think. Let's see. Um, well, hooking readers? I don't know. There I mean, you go. There you go. Uh, casting about futilely? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that's good. Well, y'all be thanking your questions because I'm going to have you come on up here. Um, but let me ask you this question. What activities interfere with your life as a writer? My day job. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and again, uh, it, what I do at work counts. It's important. It's very important. It's critical. And writing uh, is entertainment, and it always comes second. I mean, if if you're dealing with people's property, their lives, their, their, their well-being, that comes first. And uh, especially with when this book was being done and we're getting ready to release it, it becomes, you know, that I'm up at 5 o'clock in the morning doing Q&As or, or responding to things, then going to work and squeezing it in. Retired now, this has been a lot of fun. I have declared that I'm going to be sober Hunter S. Thompson on book tour. It's going to be freewheeling. I'm going to do whatever I want to um, and, and answer whatever question I want. And, and so this will be <laughs> despite a, the question, despite <laughs> the question. So it's going to it's it's just it's fun and, and not really much bothers me. Uh, just having a day job will, will certainly 
sometimes set you back in, yeah. in, in terms of, of writing. So, you know, like all good heroes, Kevin Moore does find a way, and you're going to, I think the listeners and those who read this book, um, they're going to find it to be a very satisfying ending against the forces of evil. And yet, this protagonist doesn't get everything that he desires. Is that because you're trying to be true to life? Yes. Yeah, this is the best. The, this is the, yeah, I, I, and Sally can tell you this. I, when This is really, I never, I, I really talk about my books. I never talk about my writing. Um, and just, as, as we say in, in the mountains, I just really wasn't raised that way to, to, to sit here and, and, and do a send-up of my own stuff. You know, Colonel Tom said Elvis really went over the edge when he began reading his own reviews and believing them. <laughs> and and so, I, but this is the best book I've ever written, and, and, and I am so, so proud of the ending. And, and I think most people who've mm-hmm. read it, I had it in my mind when I started, and when you get to the end and it just clicks, and, and I'm just I'm tickled with the ending, and it is a bittersweet ending, mm-hmm. but... It's one of those endings. I, I think that it's, it has three barrels, and um, and and you and, and and they're happy, sad, and and bittersweet. But but it, overall, it is a happy, good, cathartic ending. Because I don't want to. Yeah, I'm 60 years old and brushed against ruins, so I'm not anxious to, to to give you something that's dark and grim at the end. I want people to be happy when they finish. Any any questions from the audience? Yeah. Um, this this is about your. Uh, last novel before this one, and it, it probably will apply to this one as well. So we're going to sell two books tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we're not because I can't remember. <laughs> well, you can make it up. You're a novelist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the the and you draw uh, many aspects of of your characters from the life you live in small town Virginia. And I would imagine that sets your neighbors to thinking, now who was this? Yes. And in the last book, you had a. A woman who was married to a lawyer, yes. and uh, a, a well-known lawyer was attempting to seduce her. Yes. And they took off to some exotic retreat, uh, and the— uh, the, the Bahamas. Uh, the, yeah, the action uh, proceeded. And, uh, <laughs> it's, and called, he, it's called and the he, Jezebel Retreat. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And he got as far as second base, and she said, well, that's enough of that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Are, are people uh, speculating about who those folks might have been? Well, there really aren't. And the the way you the pull the way you pull that off is in this book. Sort of the romantic interest is is her name is Lily Heath. Lily is the was the name of of my pet before this series, and Heath is my wife's maiden name. I'm no fool. Um, and and in in that book. That setting, um, that club, that sunset, my wife and I <laughs> had been there. So not only do you get bonus romance points, you can write that off on your taxes. <laughs> well, I, I like that you're writing erotic thrillers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sander Brown needs to watch out, man. So that, that does raise a question about a sense of place. You, you set this story uh, in the meadows of Dan. He yeah. goes to recuperate on this farm beautiful rolling country. The option contract was near Primlin. Uh, can you give us a sense of Patrick County, Virginia, where you set this book and, and, where, wanna, and where you're from? Yeah, I want to be real emphatic about that and real clear. I, I love Patrick County. The, the region where I live is always a character, generally speaking, in my books. But, but it's also 
Meadows of Dan is different. Meadows of Dan is this anchor, this this throwback to the Patrick County that I remember, you know, three decades ago, the unlocked car doors um, where everybody is neighborly, you know each other in a good way. And, and it was a wonderful place to live. The community as a whole is not like that anymore. I think that's just the way thing ha things happen. But, but Metazadan, the mountain as we call it, is still that way. And, and I hope, I've talked to a lot of people up there, I hope I did a good job of, of, of selling that and conveying it and describing it to a bigger audience. It is a remarkable place, and it is the last stronghold of, of, of a small town uh, Stewart in Patrick County. Yeah, he he had a book signing that Park Road Books participated in. I think there were 1,300 people in the in the town, and 600 books were sold at the book signing. Now, if you if you're an author and you can sell books to half of the residents <laughs> where you live, you're doing well. Any other questions? Anybody got got a question? All right, I'll just yell it out. If uh, if this book had a soundtrack, what would be some of the songs on it? Oh. So so the question: If this book had a soundtrack. What would be some of the songs on it? Well, I mean, it's every book, you know, it's, it's, and my editor, Gary Fiskajohn, when, when Robert Earl Keane gives me the permission and I call Robert <laughs> and I say, can I, and this is the one, this is the money song. This is the road goes on forever. That's where this, this, the, the, the line at the very beginning, what do you call that? The epigraph? I can't. It is the epigraph. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you have your epigraph. You have, uh, I was going to ask you about your epigraph. That's, yeah. uh, that would be Robert Earl Keane. Um, and then. Um, Gabrielle Brooks and Gabrielle and I have worked together since 1999. She's with Knopf. She introduced me to a, a singer named Enda Eaton, and and Enda Eaton is great. And I asked Gabrielle to ask her if I could use a pull from her song, and that song is um, "The Long Way Home." It's a great song. Um, and, and, and the lyrics and, were, "There is no bad and there is, is no, no good, good, no lesson for the weary." And that's that's a sort of encapsulation of this book. But then the Robert O. King, the cards were on the table when the law came busting in. That's what happened to poor Kevin. <laughs> that's what happened to poor Kevin. That's why he ended up with a felony conviction. So I was out driving around lunchtime today, and I had a choice of stopping at one fast food restaurant or something that was selling <laughs> subs. And having read your opening, uh, you wouldn't believe what happens in the sub shop that this guy works in. It's uh, the man. They reuse the mayonnaise. They reuse the... Out-of-date meat. Out-of-date meat and repackage it. Anyway, it is a really – it's a job that – Oh, and, and let me – last thing I'll say – now, let me say the last thing that, that – and I have no idea why. Uh, but the last thing, and we'll sign some books. And mm -hmm. and so Friday I was in Richmond at, at Kelly Justice, great bookstore, fountain bookstore. Um, and and let me let me give a shout-out to, to Sally and Frazier and Park Road – um, and 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 every every stop I make of 30 on this book tour that that began in my well in my hometown and goes as far I like to say from Jackson Mississippi to Jackson Hole Wyoming is it an independent bookstore so thank you for coming out thank you for mm -hmm. supporting independent bookstores and let me tell you and I do this pitch every time I'm here why do you do that why do you support independent bookstores because you want to get good literature because you want to get good. I would not be doing this gig but for people helping me out uh, because the people who do this really are interested in not selling widgets, but in selling good books. And, and, and they help authors uh, get their start. More importantly, I like to say, if you really enjoy Britney Spears, then keep shopping with commercial giants. Because that's what, think about Clear Channel. Think about the, 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 the mega channels that control music, and you get the same 30 
bought and paid for commercial rotations. The breakout music you hear would be the breakout novel that you get here. These people love it, they promote it, and that's how this industry, in my mind, stays alive. Um, and, and they will know you, and they will pick out a book for you, and it's worth the couple of extra bucks that you're going to pay for it. So support local independent bookstores. They have been good to me um, and continue to do so. So here's, here's the last thing I'll say about, about substitution order. Gabrielle, uh, I was in Richmond, and I just finished up with Kelly, and I get an email, and it's the happiest that I have seen the folks I work with since I've been there. And... and and, it, and, it, and the, the email heading was another New York Times mention, and, and it was on Friday, and last Friday's New York Times, and the food critic <laughs> for the New York Times in his column did a, I read it, did a piece on tarts, um, a really good restaurant, and then said, and we're not sure why, but boy, am I ever grateful, and, and, and thank you, Sam, and, and he said, but let's not make this weekend about eating only everyone should go out and read martin clark's new book the substitution order this weekend and and i'm thinking this book is about out-of-date meat (laughs) (laughs) generic mayo and 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 sneaking the stuff out the back to feed the dogs i'm not real sure but 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 thank you very much. I'm I'm yeah. grateful for that. So, so Martin, I want to I want to thank you too for being on the podcast. We're big fans of Park Road Books as well. Charlotte Reader's podcast couldn't do it without him. Um, Mark's gonna stay around. He's gonna sign some books. But let's give him a hand. How about that? Come on. And thank you. It's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. In next week's episode, we have best-selling author Mary Beth Whalen reads from and discusses her recent book, Only Ever Her, a novel that pulls a town apart in search of a young bride-to-be. Mary Beth is the author of Only Ever Her, When We Were Worthy, The Things We Wish Were True, and five previous novels. She speaks to children's groups around the U.S. and is the co-founder of the popular women's fiction site, She Reads, where she and her co-founder express their belief that story is the shortest distance to the human heart. I like that. Uh, and only ever her, it was supposed to be the perfect wedding until Annie Taft disappeared. While loved ones tried to track her down, they were forced to grapple with their own secrets, leaving them to wonder how well they really knew Annie and how well they knew themselves. It's uh, called Women's Psychological Fiction. For periodic updates about the show and upcoming authors, please sign up for the podcast email list at charlottereaderspodcast.com. We promise not to spam you, because Landis says that takes too much time. And if you do sign up as a thank you, Landis will give you an ebook complete with illustrations, his first in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our five sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can listen to Charlotte Readers Podcast episodes for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is available on social media, on Facebook at Charlotte Readers Podcast, on Twitter at Charlotte Reader, on Instagram and on LinkedIn at Landis Wade. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.